As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, friends. I just want to say welcome to my new podcast. You're doing a good job. And if you don't know, my name is Caleb, and I'm your host. Can I just say that when it comes to this podcast, it is my deepest desire not only to inspire you and challenge you, but also to remind you, regardless of where you're at in life, that you're doing a good job. On this podcast, we will dive deep and explore what it looks like to expand our lives consciously. Because when we expand our lives consciously, we become more emotionally aware, present, and connected people. And when we do become more emotionally aware, present, and connected, we win. Our relationships win, our self-worth wins, our sense of purpose wins, and most importantly, our mental health and emotional wellness win. Here just recently, I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Regine Galanti, who is a licensed psychologist specializing in the assessment and treatment of individuals with anxiety and OCD. And we had a simple but yet powerful conversation on what it looks like to reclaim your life through the lens of cognitive behavioral therapy. I really love this conversation for so many different reasons, especially since cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, it really played a big role in my own life. But also, I loved it because Dr. Galanti does such a great job at taking different experiences in life that can be so overwhelming and so debilitating, and she breaks it down and offers us a solution or really a map on how we can begin to better navigate those experiences. This conversation is great for anyone that is trying to better understand the road ahead of them when it comes to the journey of emotional wellness and overall behavioral health. To get a little bit more specific, on this episode, we talk about the importance of modeling emotional wellness to the young people in our lives so that they can begin to model it in their own life. We also talk about the power of self-awareness and mindfulness and how you can begin to practice them, the importance of keeping in an emotion journal and how to do that and what that means, as well as the importance of self-compassion and how you can begin to better practice it on your journey to emotional health. Again, this conversation really is powerful in a sense that it provides us with a foundation to stand on as we begin to navigate our journey into emotional wellness and behavioral health. And just so that you know, Dr. Galanti specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and parent-child interaction therapy, and she is the founder of Long Island Behavioral Psychology, a therapy practice in Nassau Nassau County, Long Island, 
And she's also the author, and this is how I found her, the author of Anxiety Relief for Teens, Essential CBT Skills and Mindfulness Practices to Overcome Anxiety and Stress. She is also a very highly sought-out speaker who has been quoted in the Washington Post, Self Magazine, and BuzzFeed, among others. Lastly, before we dive into this podcast, can I ask a big favor? If you find this episode useful in any way, it would mean the world to me if you left a review on my podcast as well as share this episode with just one friend that you might think would benefit from it. That would be so, so helpful. And now that we got that out of the way, here's what Dr. Galanti has to say. I have noticed in my own life that as I have slowed down, there have been an emergence of uncomfortable emotions. Which oh, is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that can that can definitely happen, right? right? Especially if you're noticing them, but it's great that you're noticing them. Yes, and so I've just realized that, oh my gosh, my go, go, go in life, this disposition to hustle and to achieve and to go, I don't know, and I've had to ask myself this uh, several times, but I don't know if it's been so much about like, achievement or about hustle as much as it has been about avoiding stillness because when I avoid the stillness right I don't have to deal with all the uncomfortable emotions but those are still subconsciously playing a big part in my life and so I know the work that you do is helping teens helping young adults um, deal with the anxiety in their life Um, and so that's really why I wanted to have you on today and before we kind of dive into that topic can you just kind of give me a little bit of context of the work that you do and how you guys started in this work sure so I am uh, I specialize in kids and teens uh, with anxiety and OCD and I have a private practice in New York so talking about fast pace (laughs) definitely (laughs) I was like why are they walking so slow um (laughs) Can we just speed it up a little bit? Um, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, and I, I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist and specifically work with kids because I think development is so cool. The way mm. kids really just change so quickly in the first probably now like 25 years of their lives, which if you told me when I was younger, I would consider like a 25-year-old, still not a fully formed person. I would have thought that that was, <laughs> didn't yes. make so much sense. Um, but we really do. We shift and change so much. So I was interested in like the things that make that normal process not happen the way it's supposed to. Mm. Um, and anxiety is really one of those things. It's one of those things that if you don't treat it, it can really have such a negative impact on your life. But on the flip side, if you treat it right, it doesn't get in the way. We mm. have skills that really help kids, adolescents, adults um, manage and cope with their anxiety. And when you can give those skills to a kid or a teen or an adult, and it does change their life, I find it so gratifying. Yeah. What do you feel like is the major deterrent when it comes to helping teens just accept and to work through these uncomfortable emotions, specifically anxiety. Is it the stigma around it or is it just the lack of coping skills or all of the above? Well, I think there's definitely, there's stigma, there's lack of coping skills. There's, 
I hate to blame parents. I know my parents, my kids will eventually blame me for everything that goes wrong too. It's natural, but parenting, right? We are a product of the way we grew up. And that's not always even in the way that people think, like it's not bad parenting. It's more being aware of emotion is a huge part of what I talk about. And there are these parenting messages that often we give our kids without realizing how invalidating they are emotionally. Mm. We're telling our kids, like, don't be sad, don't be worried, don't worry. Why can't you do that? Um, you know, it's so natural to say things like that and they're not helpful. So if you have a kid who's kind of growing up with a, a parents who are saying like these messages that are like, you don't have to worry about that. Why can't you just do that? That also doesn't help. Yeah. So I think there's a biological part. Some people are born more anxious. Mm. Um, there's a parenting piece, the way you grow up. There's also then being able to find resources. So as a teen, you're very dependent again on the adults around you. So if you don't have good, a good network, even if you want the skills, how are you going to get them? Yeah. That's actually why I wrote a book because I wanted to get some of these skills to the people who need them. Absolutely. I keep thinking about the whole parenting piece. And I do think that on one hand, as I reflect back on my own life, um, on one hand, there was the messaging of like, don't be sad, Um, you know, like push through it. Uh, You're strong. Um, You can do it, you know, but there was never any space or permission for to allow me to come undone. And I also think that there was you know, I think when they, when, if we talk about love and romantic partnerships, um, there's a lot of studies and a lot of research coming out that's saying like, you know, the old narrative is we attract, you know, the people in our life that we intrinsically think that we're worth, but that's kind of damaging. I don't like to say that <laughs> it's kind of, I don't, I just don't like the way that that comes out. Um, and now all the studies and the research kind of show that like, no, you attract the love that was modeled to you mm. as parents. And that makes a lot of sense because if, whether that love is toxic or not toxic or whether it's a good somebody, you know, like it was modeled well or not well, like it's safe because it's familiar and we repeat it. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways, like children, I know that I, in a lot of ways, modeled behavioral health or I, I lived out my behavioral health experience that was modeled to me. And so mm-hmm. what are, from your experience, like what can we do as parents I say we as if I'm a parent. I'm not a parent yet. But, <laughs> um, but what can we do as parents, I guess, to help better model um, a healthy relationship uh, with anxiety, with any sort of mental health challenges that might come up, that will inevitably come up? Yeah. Well, I can talk about this for seven hours. So I don't have time to you. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> First of all, I want to point out something you said, like growing up with that, like kind of like be strong. Yeah. Like that's such a, that's the athlete kind of like model, right? Like suck it up to do it. Like, which is actually an important part of healthy, like raising, raising healthy kids. But the problem is when you get it alone, it's a very invalidating message. So you need the, you can do this, but you also need the, and it's okay to feel bad while mm. you do it. Mm. The, the validation, the, you know, acceptance of this might not feel so good and that's okay. Why do you think that part of the message is left out? 
Because I feel like it's always left out. <laughs> I think there are parents that do it both ways, right? There are some parents that are all about the everything's so bad for you and like I can't expect you to tr- like you're so anxious i can't expect you to go to the birthday party mm. i can't expect you to go on this trip it's unfair of me to push you mm. there's that um but again i think like you know it's probably in your crowd if you're hanging out with other athletes yeah. that's not the kind of parent <laughs> parenting that's more common then you have the you know no push through it like you can do it like you need to do it um yeah. which which is really helpful like you know, to be able to learn to push through, except the validation part when it's missing, it's, you know, it leaves kids feeling very unmoored. Like I should be able to do this and I shouldn't be feeling this way. So it reinforces, it reinforces like, I'm just thinking back in my life of when I was told the message of like push through it and I couldn't push through it. It actually reinforced this almost subconscious level of like, I guess self-hatred, like, cause now I see myself as weak. Now I see myself as I don't have what it takes. Now I see myself as incapable. And that is so damaging to just your overall sense of self-worth. Right. And it's okay to fail and it's yeah. okay to do hard. And, you know, and we can do hard things, but yeah. we might not always succeed. Mm. But doing hard things is the success. <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's yeah, the whole the redefining of success. Yeah. But going back to the systems that we can begin to place put in place as parents that can help model Mm -hmm. a healthy. Yeah. Right. I'm glad that you remembered the question because I was like, (laughs) I know Caleb asked the question. I'm going to get back there. I know I can do it. Uh, So um, I think that right. Key parent ingredients is focusing on that validation of an emotional experience with the confidence in kids that they can do it. So both those pieces together is an important piece. Um, but also modeling, right? Modeling emotion. Uh, we want yeah. our kids to feel all their feelings and then, you know, something terrible happens to us and we're like, I can't cry. This would be terrible. Like shut down those feelings, lock them away. Like that's not healthy either. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's okay to tell kids I'm sad right now. Like, mm. you know, I'm angry. Like talk about your own feelings, being able to, model them and model problem solving instead of you feel all your feelings, but mine, like, nope. Like I never feel angry, anxious, sad, like, nope, not me. (laughs) That's so powerful. Like, I think that is, I think that is a hard place for, for parents to go because they want to be seen as, I I mean, I guess they would want to be seen in a lot of ways. I don't want to speak on behalf of parents, but I'm thinking about my own life. They want to be seen as somebody that has what it takes. They want to be see that they mm-hmm. have things in control, right? That it doesn't get to them. I remember the first time I ever saw my dad cry. It was when his mom, my grandmother passed away. And I remember just being like, what is going on? Like completely yeah. confused and disoriented because at this point I've never seen my dad express in an emotion. And so I just remember being like, wait, what? Like he gets sad too. And I think <laughs> if I was raised, I know if I was raised knowing that my father also uh, was given himself the permission to be sad, there would, it would have just been modeled to me in such a healthier way. Mm-hmm. I actually, my oldest is 11 and recently, I don't know what, something made me upset and you know, she was getting agitated that I was upset and I finally turned to her and I said, honey, 
I'm allowed to be angry. I'm not angry at you, but I'm allowed to be angry and I'm going to use my skills and I'm going to like, it's going to pass. But right now I feel angry and that's okay. Um, He kind of stormed off. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. We're not telling you that it all works out great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but she's allowed to feel our feelings, but it's just more like I'm allowed to, you know, I don't have to be this completely in control person all the time. Like, I don't know, something breaks. I can get pissed. Well, how would you like (laughs) sit down with a parent that is, wanting to move more into that direction of being able to model how they process feelings and emotions? Like where would you even start to somebody that's never given themselves the permission as a parent to do that? Yeah. So I think it requires like what you're asking is a hard, it's, it's a hard thing because you're saying like often we're willing to do things, let's say for our kids that we wouldn't do for our own selves. Um, And there's a lot of work that you have to do to kind of be able to model healthy emotions if you if you're not able to do that but i think it's the easier way to start is validating your kids emotions right being able to say i see you're feeling sad that's okay or i talk a lot about an emotion thermometer like basically uh throwing up a scale like zero to ten how anxious do you feel how sad do you feel um gives us a language to talk about feelings Mm -hmm. so if i'm talking to a parent i would say okay so be aware of that like kind of three four level of emotion where it's totally not over over parent empowering but it's there label that like oh i'm feeling sad now because the main character in my show died like Mm. that's allowed too yeah (laughs) um to just practice we know the more you practice almost anything the better you get at it so like set a goal of you know Using labeling an emotion once a day in front of your kids would not be a terrible idea. I love that. Labeling an emotion once a day in front of your kids would not be a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Shifting directions a little bit. Can you explain almost chemically what's happening when we are experiencing something like anxiety? So the way I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist, um, it's a type of therapy that focuses on changing your, um, thoughts and your behaviors and giving people strategies for both. Um, So the way I understand emotions is that there's kind of three parts to them. There's what you think. So some kind of thought bubble. If there's a tiger in the room, um, you're going to think something like danger, get out of here. Well, that's not a thought. Get out of here is actually behavior getting ahead of myself. So there's a thought, there's a physical reaction, which is that biological part. It's that fight or flight response that, you're not just going to kind of like chill out like, oh, okay, you know, I guess there's a tiger. Your body is going to kind of get activated. Your heart's going to start racing. Your breathing's going to speed up. Your muscles are going to get tighter. Um, you might get a headache. You might get nauseous. All normal because your body wants you to get away from the tiger. Um, and then the third part, so what I think, what I feel in my body, and then what I do. So mm. with behaviors, it's all about um, escaping or avoiding, get away, get away from the tiger or fight it if you're stuck in the room. Um, so that process, you know, is how kind of all emotions work and they all, the thoughts, feelings and behaviors all play off of each other. So when you run away, next time you'll feel more afraid in the same situation, um, which is good if there are tigers, it's not so good when it's a false alarm or a time when like there's no danger present. Yeah. So where do we start? When it comes to, that's such a big question. And I know, so like CBT played an instrumental role 
in my life. Um, and so I'm like, I'm very deeply appreciative of the work that you do. And so like when it comes to our thoughts and our behaviors in that middle ground, right? Cause I feel like that's where we get lost is we mm-hmm. have that thought, we have that, that emotional response. And sometimes mm-hmm. that response is so like, we're so unaware of how we're responding And I know for me, just deploying self-awareness in my life and learning how to catch myself in my response um, was so valuable. And that was the beginning process for me. But from your experience, like, how can we begin to deploy the self-awareness to not only catch ourselves in our response, but understand our thought patterns that are Mm -hmm. unhealthy and leading, therefore, to unhealthy behaviors? Yeah. So I think it's a great question. Honestly, the first step is being, is that awareness. Mm-hmm. It's noticing that what you're doing when you're getting anxious. I tell people to start keeping like a log, like it can be on your phone. It can be, I'm actually a paper and pencil person. I keep Same. a, you know, like hard planner. <laughs> I need it to be able to see it and look back in a way that's not like, which what something updated and it's a different color now. I can't find it, um, which might be dating myself. So it helps. <laughs> um, but whenever you notice a feeling, right? Like you're, you bring in that awareness by saying, okay, every time I feel anxious, I'm just going to write down what was happening in that moment. Like, um, and do that for a couple of days, do that for a week. Like you will start noticing patterns. Um, the reason why we don't notice patterns is often because we're not looking for them because once you feel anxious, you're in that mode of, I got to go, I got to get away from it. You're trying to fix it. So you're not normally thinking about, Hey, what started this? Because it seems like an irrelevant part of the equation. Um, but it's not, it's actually the key to everything. Right. So you're aware (laughs) when you're aware of it, you're saying, so write down the, the emotion when you're aware of it. Yeah. Like, you know, like literally, if you're tracking anxiety, you don't even have to write down anxiety because you're tracking anxiety, but write down like, you know, 10 a.m., uh, you know, sitting, drinking coffee, then anxious, like. Um, it's so practical. Yeah. And what it does, it's easy to be like, dismiss it really quickly because I'm thinking back in my own life. I think you'd be so proud of me. I did this unknowingly because I did realize, I remember reading a quote from Viktor Frankl and it was, are you familiar, familiar with Viktor Frankl? Yeah. Right? And, he, and he says like between stimulus and response, there is a space, mm-hmm. right? And in that space is our power to choose our response. And I came across that quote uh, uh, early on in my healing journey and I was just like, oh, in between stimulus and response, there is space. I get lost in that space because I don't recognize when the stimulus hits me. I don't recognize the beginning Mm -hmm. part of this entire journey. So I was like, I do need to learn how to become increasingly more self-aware. And so something that I encourage other people to do is essentially what you just said, and it's what I did, is I carried a notebook in my back pocket for almost an entire year. And throughout that year, any time I felt an uncomfortable emotion, whether I'm driving down the freeway, I'm at the grocery store, I'm in the gym, anytime I felt some sort of uncomfortable emotion, whether it was anxiety or stress or this you know, measure of depression hit me, I would stop and I would write that down. I would honor it. I would acknowledge it. And then I would try to really get curious on the thought patterns that mm-hmm. I was entertaining during that time to help me understand what was the driving thoughts behind my uncomfortable emotions that I was feeling. And that opened up the door to 
remarkable measures of self-awareness that begin to allow me to further along my journey of emotional health. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you like self-taught mindfulness right there. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to be so hard. So if you're not willing to go on your own kind of self-care or, you know, yes. <laughs> journey, that's what therapy literally is for. Yes. Absolutely. So what are there some, I know that there as the, the, let's just acknowledge the emotions and honor them and write them down and time it out. Cause that does mm-hmm. in and of itself create a level of self-awareness. What are some other mindful practices that we can begin to implement to help engage or help yeah engage self-awareness in our lives? Mm-hmm. So I actually think that mindfulness in general gets I don't think it's a bad rap. I think it's a wrong rap. Okay. Probably the better way to say it. Um, because people think it's supposed to be relaxing. Right. Uh, what you started with, with the moving to Nashville, having to slow down, noticing mm. those uncomfortable feelings, like that's super mindful, but it's not really comfortable. <laughs> no. It doesn't always mean like, <laughs> so it's making room for all those uncomfortable feelings. And honestly, the way I think of that mindfulness is more attention. Mm. So where can I focus my attention? So it can be on the emotion, but once you're aware of your attention, you can control it. And that is a useful tool mm. for managing emotions because it means that let's say I am delving in, I find myself just, just um, snowballing into a negative emotional experience. If I'm mindful that that's going on, I can choose to put my attention somewhere else. I can say, Okay, that's here. I'm not saying it's not here. I can't make it stop. I'm not stopping the snowball. But what I am doing is I'm going to call a friend and I'm going to put my attention in that conversation with my friend. Or I'm going to go for a run and I'm just, I'm going to focus on that run. So it's not saying my emotions aren't there Mm. or trying to avoid them. But it's choosing to shift your attention Mm. towards something you would rather do because no one wants to sit in their anxiety, sit in their depression all day. For sure. And I think you hit the nail on the head when it's like, I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm, I'm honoring it. It's there. But now that Mm. I am aware of it, that it's there and it's not subconsciously driving my life. Because I know for me, whenever I would spiral out of control in my thought life, I could be lost in those thoughts for days, if not weeks, right? Like if it hit me hard, I would go weeks just having this nonstop Rolodex of worries and fears and anxieties, and it would just completely cripple my life. And I sometimes wouldn't come out of that spiral for, for days or weeks. And I know that a lot of people express concern that if they start to honor their feelings Mm -hmm. that they're they're also going to drown in them. They're going to get lost in them. But what you're saying is, Hey, I can honor them. But as I begin to practice mindfulness, I can now begin to shift my thought patterns or I can begin to shift um, the direction that I want to take this. Yeah. One metaphor I use a lot in therapy is like right now you're a soda bottle and Mm. it shook you up (laughs) and um, the goal is to open it and see what happens. Like if you have a lot of anxiety, depression, anger, and you haven't been honoring it um, and then you open the soda bottle, you, there's only one thing that can happen. (laughs) It's going to explode. Like we have this idea that like, no, this time is going to be different this time. I'm not going to explode, but we haven't set ourselves up for that. And the better model 
is to kind of like, you know, that soda bottle was shaken. You got to, you know, yeah. open close, like let it out a little bit. I love and that. that's going to be uncomfortable because it means like anxiety is kind of always seeping out. Mm. <laughs> but it's way more controllable because now I can react to that and I don't get soda all over. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a, I, I've had plenty of soda spills in my life. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's sticky. It's gross. It's, uh, you know, yeah. it's not ideal. <laughs> it's not ideal at all. And so I would love to like kind of take this from, okay, we are deploying self-awareness in our life. We are becoming more mindful because I've realized in my life, I would, where I would once get lost, let's say for weeks in my thoughts, and then I would start practicing self-awareness and then I would shorten it to days and I continued to practice self-awareness and then I would be activated. And then instead of spending weeks lost in my thoughts and all of the uncomfortableness of it all, I would then be able to shift in hours and then be mm -hmm. able to get to the point where I can shift almost immediately, right? Cause I address it. I honor it. I see it. Let's make a different decision right now. So in a lot of ways we're shortening I think they, I don't know if I'm, if this is the correct term, but shortening the refractory period, the space between, um, sure. <laughs> right. It sounds good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I would love to talk about, because when we do have that thought pattern, um, it drives us into this, this space, this, this liminal space, this no man's land where we can, that Victor Frankl talks about how we can, is our power to choose our response. And a lot of that is the fight or flight. It's the, mm -hmm. um, I'm spiraling out of control, or for me, I would erupt with anger and a rage. Um, if I felt uncomfortable, or if I felt exposed or vulnerable, that was my self-protective uh, mechanism that I would immediately activate. How do we live in that middle space? Like, mm -hmm. what can we begin to do to self-regulate and to ground ourselves so that we can choose our behaviors differently? So I'll tell you that a lot of what I talk about in therapy with my anxious kids is I really talk about what emotions are like, like that thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and I help them recognize that fight or flight reaction. It's going to happen mm -hmm. whether or not you choose it. Like if you feel anxious, your body is going to be activated, but just because your body feels activated doesn't mean you need to make the, do the behavior that you want to be doing. It's, there's going to be that push. I'm actually not so into relaxation exercises as a blanket statement yeah. because your body is pushing you in a different direction. Yeah. And what kind of what we're talking about in terms of like honoring your emotion, like honoring the fact that like, okay, your body is super activated right now and that's okay. But there are plenty of times when our bodies get super activated and we don't act on it or we don't act in that way or we don't even imagine it as anxiety. Um, one example I, I always give is like, I, you know, I'm not afraid of public speaking, but I was once sitting at a conference and I looked down and my hands are shaking. And I'm like, am I anxious? I guess there's not so many people here. I have no idea why I'm anxious, but okay, I guess I'm anxious. Whatever. I'm an anxiety therapist. I know how to handle this. No problem. Then I look down again and I realize I'm holding my like fourth cup of coffee and, I'm, <laughs> and I like coffee, but I'm not a person who can handle like four cups of coffee on like in one morning. So my body felt anxious and my brain went along with it. Oh, you must be anxious. <laughs> And if I just kind of went down that spiral unknowingly, I re really could have spiked myself out. 
Um, it was only by kind of slowing down and saying, okay, so my body's activated. Who cares? Um, I can't act on this right now. Um, it allowed me to shift. And that's actually where my primary focus of my, um, uh, the, my practice is. Mm-hmm. It's in terms of getting comfortable being uncomfortable mm-hmm. and then kind of making those decisions to face the things you fear and do the things you want instead. Um, where do we start it is (laughs) it really is can you maybe take me down like um the journey of that of like hey i'm deeply uncomfortable but i know this is what i'm afraid of and i have to face this like how Mm -hmm. do i how do i start that journey because i can imagine like obviously on the other side of that fear is an expanded life yeah right a very i think it's right focusing on that Mm -hmm. why do you want to do this Mm -hmm. you know like, what does that expanded life look like? Like, of course, if we're going to talk about, like, you know, how you're afraid to talk to new people, that fear is overwhelming. Yeah. But what will happen if you start talking to new people, even if you feel afraid? Like, what will it look like if you can talk to new people, yeah. no matter what? So I focus very little on if you're, like, why do you have to do this calmly? It's okay to do it anxiously. Mm. But what would it look like if you can do this? Or, you know, I, I'm seeing actually a couple people, maybe it's just the season, who are afraid of bees right now. Uh. Um, and they don't go outside. Wow. So, like, what would your life look like if you can go outside? Mm. Honestly, I've been stung by bees before. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Not, like, definitely ruined my day. But if I then never went outside again... Like my life would be so much more limited. Mm. So helping them think about the reasons why they want to do what they want to do. And we start there like with values and with what's important to me, um, why it's important to me to do the thing I don't want to do. And then we back into it. We say, okay, like let's break this up into as many steps as necessary. What's the first step? Do you think you can just walk outside and walk back in? Do you think you can, you know, pick up the phone and ask the store when they open and when they close um, as a first step to talking to people in school. Um, you know, and we do it together and we do it repeatedly. Yeah. It's almost like shampoo directions, like rinse, lather, repeat, like over and over because we know fear doesn't maintain itself. Mm-hmm. If you let an emotion kind of go, like what you were saying, like the response being shorter and shorter and shorter, if you do the same thing a thousand times, you're going to get bored. Yeah. And that's true for any emotion, not just anxiety and fear. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to be happy about something that you do the exact same way. Um, it kind of gets boring. <laughs> it gets really boring. I like the bee analogy though. It's because like, Oh, I know I need to go outside today. I look at my door. I see a bee suddenly, I go down a million worst case scenarios in my head. I start to feel my heart rate increase. I start to maybe even sweat a little bit. Now I'm suddenly riddled with anxiety and then I never go out. I don't take that first step. And I I can relate to that in so many, obviously different areas. Maybe it's not just the B, but like you said, it's talking to people or putting yourself out there for that job interview or asking that person out on a date, whatever it might be. This CBT approach really is, 
it's such a beautiful approach because what you just did, you took something so big and so overwhelming and you narrowed it down to one step. Hey, let's get a hold of our thought patterns here. Let's understand that you're panicking and that's okay. That's okay. But if we can ground ourselves in that moment and then we can take one small step towards actually stepping outside or facing that fear, right? What we're really doing is we are, I guess, almost like from a scientific standpoint, we're creating a new homeostasis in our central nervous system. And we're teaching mm-hmm. ourselves that we can do hard things. We're reminding ourselves that we can do hard things. And that one step after another, after another, suddenly I'm walking outside despite being bees around me. And I've just opened myself up to experiencing a whole new way of life. Right. Right. And that's a very powerful message for people. Absolutely. I love the whole CBT approach. I think that was so because I think there's so much narratives around right now, obviously, with healing emotional trauma. And like there's these big concepts that people are trying to live into and it's debilitating and it's overwhelming because mm-hmm. we might not have necessarily the full grasp of the tools that are needed or we don't fully clarify or understand what that looks like because we can just digest all of our little Instagram posts and try to make our life into, you know, this picture that we read on a post. But what CBT does is it breaks this down, this process down for you that's very applicable. Mm-hmm. And it literally changes your life. I'm speaking from my own experience here. <laughs> it literally changes your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the one pushback that comes out of it, well, there's a bunch, but in terms of what we're talking about, the steps is what's this one little step going to matter? Like often when people come to my office, like I can do that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> what's it going to, that's not going to change my life. Yes. And really kind of like, oh okay, yeah, let's see, let's see, let's just do this one tiny step. Yes. <laughs> you honest, I remember waking up in my own life and being like, whoa, that just happened. And I chose something completely differently. My response was completely different. And as a result, the outcome was so much more healthier. And what it really did for me, Dr. Galante, is I was like, I am reclaiming my life. Mm -hmm. I have power now. Like I am taking back the power over my life. And I'm not just this puppet, right, that is going to have these reactionary responses based on anything that happens in my life because life is hard and life is messy. (laughs) But what I'm really doing is I'm not living my life dependent on what happens or what doesn't happen because I have learned how to reclaim my power and I get to decide on how I'm going to choose to respond to this situation. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic message and a fantastic thing that, you know, for people to learn that, Mm just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean you need to act in that way. Yeah. Behavior change is hard though. Oh my gosh. Behavior change is hard. (laughs) Right. So what do we say to somebody that is in that process um, and it's sticky and they might be going back to old patterns and old behaviors? Like how do we, how do we keep pushed forward on this, in this area? Yeah. Well, I tell my patients all the time, like you're still a baby at healthy coping. You do the wrong thing 7,000 times. You do the right thing three times. You really think it's going to be like ingrained in you. I actually, I am not a sports person, but I think sports (laughs) metaphors sometimes work really well for therapy. Like, you know, you're learning a new skill. You try it once and you're supposed to be great at it. Is that the way sports works? Uh. (laughs) 
Um, no, you do drills. You do it over and over and over and Practice. over and over and over and over. Like, yeah. it's more about like leveraging kind of my relationship with my patients and what they want and their values in order to kind of keep them in the process till they see those results that we yeah. want them to see. I think I realized that in my life, I was playing a different game now. When this became like the the main priority of my life and healing, learning how to do exactly what we're talking about, I had to re-identify the metrics of success where the world would say like maybe your success is accomplishing your goal, right? And anxiety or any other mental health challenge was a deterrent from you actually accomplishing your goal. And when you didn't accomplish your goal, you'd feel terrible about yourself. You'd be mad at yourself, whatever it might be. But I realized that accomplishing my goals necessarily isn't the metric of success when I'm on the healing journey. The metric of success is to become more aware (laughs) of my thought patterns and the behaviors that are being influenced by my thought patterns. Suddenly I realized that I honestly turned this into a game. When I felt uncomfortable emotions come up in my life, panic, stress, fear, and I became aware of it, I would honestly yell with joy. Because I just reached a new level of success in my life. How I would now define success is because I allowed myself the space and I taught myself and I trained myself, I disciplined myself to become mindful and aware of my emotions, which at one point just ran rampant in my life uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, oh, that's success in this season. That's Mm -hmm. success, right? And these new metrics of success I think are just a good way of maybe using the sports analogy. Like every time I'm a fo- ex football player. And so every time I became more aware of my emotions, like, yeah, this is me driving the ball down the field. Like this is me on my way to scoring a touchdown. Right. Right. I think exactly. Right. Whenever I, I like with, with teams a lot, it's about knowing what they're interested in. Yeah. So I'm always like Googling, like, okay, how can I make this analogy work? Because I think that's perfect. Football is actually the perfect like metaphor for therapy because there are so many steps that it takes yeah. for your, 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 the touch, like what is that, the, 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 the end zone. Yeah, the, the end zone. <laughs> sorry. No, you're great. <laughs> there's one, um, there's one topic that I would love to cover as we wrap this up. Um, and thank you so much. This is, I think, a beautiful introduction to CBT and the process that we can begin to engage in to take back ownership of our life. Um, through this all, I can't help but to think how critical self-compassion is. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think it's so easy to hold yourself to these standards and these expectations. First and foremost, you think that if you're being riddled with, if you're if you're being met with anxiety or depression or any other sort of mental health challenge, that you automatically, what's wrong with me? Why is this mm-hmm. happening to me? What am I doing wrong? Right? And then it's so easy to be angry at yourself or think that you should be beyond this, especially if you've been on the healing journey before. Suddenly you think, oh, I've already dealt with this. Why is it coming back? I must suck at healing. <laughs> right? yeah. I suck at everything else in life, and now I also suck at healing. Congratulations. I can't, I can't even, yeah, I can't even fix myself, yes. right? <laughs> right? And so I know how easy, how easy it is to just get lost in that oh, self-hatred or self-criticism. Mm-hmm. How can we begin from your experience, maybe just begin to really implement a strategy of self-compassion that helps mm-hmm. us along this journey? 
I love how you said it's the strategy because mm. I think that's the answer. It needs to be an active strategy. It can't be something you just expect from yourself. Same way, same way we're talking about changing metrics, changing the goals. You need to actively say, I am choosing to be compassionate towards myself. And there are some um, exercises you can do for this. Actually, my favorite one is pretty simple. It's I ask people, okay, they'll tell me a story about how they're beating themselves up about X or Y or Z, how, you know, everyone else can cope better. Okay, what would you tell a friend who just told me what you just said? Mm, yeah. Um, now, what are you telling yourself? Yeah. Um, what can you be your own friend? If you, you know, like, can you tell yourself the thing you would tell a friend? Um, and, you know, it's it could be writing that down. Yeah, but like really just, we never treat our friends the way we treat ourselves. Yeah. It's so true. It puts it into perspective and it's such a great resource to begin to um, implement in your life or it's just a strategy to implement in your life. If I'm not going to say it to my best friend, if I'm not going to say it to my wife, I have no right saying it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes will tell my patients, I'm like, you're bullying yourself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Man, it's so true. Well, thank you so much. Well, where can I find more um, about you? Or can you also just explain a little bit before we sum this all up? I know you wrote a book. Um, so I wrote a book. Yeah. yeah. So can um, you just talk to me a little bit about that book? And I'll make sure I'll have you and all of your resources in the book linked in the description of this podcast. Um, so my book's Anxiety Relief for Teens. It is, um, yeah, it's a self-help book for teens. But honestly, the stuff I talk about, <laughs> I think it's applicable to um, I like kind of all ages. But um, I have... Um, it's a, it's a self-help book for, like I said, for teens. Um, I actually have a new book coming out for younger kids, um, that that's going to come out probably the end of the end of the summer. So in August, um, so that's called, um, um, when Harley has anxiety, the <laughs> little kid book. Um, <laughs> and, um, I have a private practice that's called Long Island Behavioral Psychology. So. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to have uh, the books or the your book now linked to the description of this podcast. And when your new book comes out, I'll update the I'll update mm -hmm. the uh, podcast information to make sure that's linked as well. But thank you so much. I think this is incredibly helpful. Um, I really do think it's a foundational approach to cognitive behavior therapy um, and how that can become so instrumental in our lives when it's about us reclaiming our lives. And so thanks for uh, your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.